Jonathan Lehman, thank you for starting us off with that, brother. I can tell you've thought about that for a long time. Uh, clear, specific, full of biblical challenges. Let me just go right to your uh, second implication. Uh, I tweeted it shamelessly while you were speaking. Uh, church membership is an office, a job. Now, I know that you, in an academic sense, love ecclesiology. Are you a little worried about using that kind of language? Or do you mean to say, like elder, like deacon, the church membership is, in fact, an office? Uh, I'm very much meaning to say that, like deacon or elder, it is an office, yes. Ligon, do you want to take him on on that and help him out? Come on, man, you're a, you're a Presbyterian. Yeah, th- that's a really intriguing way to talk about it. And I want to emphatically affirm, from a Presbyterian perspective, that the congregation has responsibilities that are divinely vested in it by Jesus himself directly, including the selection of church officers. So that is an office given by Jesus to the church. Now, I think the way we have historically... On the selection of church officers, biblically, where would you get that that's the congregation's responsibility? Acts 6? Acts 6 would be... Well, actually, the better example of that would be 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the description of the qualifications for church officers Mm -hmm. is given by Paul to Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, not because Timothy doesn't know what those qualifications are because he's already a church officer, but because he needs to teach his congregation what those qualifications are so that they can select men which are in accord with that. And so uh, there's even debate about whether the term in Acts 14.23 in which it says Paul appointed elders may well signify the process whereby they were selected, that is by election or handing. So um, whatever the case is, clearly church members have that responsibility. They have other responsibilities as well. Um, And what would be the potentially problematic aspect of calling membership an office as long as you are upholding the integrity of offices like elder and deacon in the church. What would be potentially theologically or ecclesiastically problematic with that? I'm not sure there is one. One's office with a capital O and one's maybe an office with a small O, but I do like the fact that it uh, clearly emphasizes, and I think we miss this, that all of the members have responsibilities, and especially for the doctrinal integrity of the church. When Paul wrote Galatians, uh, he did not write it just to the leadership. He wrote it to the whole church, and he held the whole church accountable for losing the gospel, or at least running the risk of losing the gospel. Well, the whole church has responsibility, but <clears throat> together with that responsibility is authority. You can't give somebody responsibility without simultaneously giving them authority. You can't say you're responsible to clean the whole building as a janitor and not give you the keys to all the rooms of the building. I have to give you authority to carry out responsibility. And that's, that's why I do like the language of, of office, as it communicates that idea of both responsibility and some measure of authority. And actually, Ligon, when I was uh, in my notes, in the first point, help guard the gospel John, witness. Pull it away from your mouth a little bit. It might ring a little less. Uh, I actually, I had a little comment about even the PCA gets their congregationalism on in affirming, you know, uh, gospel teachers. Right. Um, so I don't think that's unique to congregationalism. 
probably yeah, the Mark, fullest it, developed. The only danger could be that it would somehow de-emphasize the significance import and importance of those who are called to the office uh, of the elder. But if that's rightly taught, I don't think the risk is going to be very great. I like the idea of it raising the importance of church membership, which again in our Baptist tradition, it once was held very highly. In my lifetime, though, we're now scrambling to recover it, which is why I'm glad we're doing this, because I don't think it has been viewed as important and crucial as it ought to be. We, it's basically like joining a country club, and you move around from this one to this one to this one, and uh, the idea that I actually am a bona fide investor in this and, and, and accountable for it and responsible for it is something that I think desperately needs to be regained. So if the elders at First Baptist Grand came in were here, would they recognize this teaching? Would they say, like, yeah, this is what we understand the Bible teaches on church membership? Uh, I think so. <laughs> How about Parkside Church? Yes, I think so, too, in the sense that, I mean, I don't like, I don't like actually, the, the word job. Mm. I'm not sure I even like the word office. So sort of viscerally, I don't respond to it in a positive way in terms of a designation. Not because I don't affirm all the things that are underlying the reason that you've used that terminology, because I do. But, I, I, you know, it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't ring for me the way the notion of privilege as, as, as much as sort of job. I mean, the immense privilege of having been included in this great venture. I mean, I know you're not saying that it isn't that, but... Um, you know, the mobilization of the people of God um, on account of the, the, the mercy of God instilling a sense of gratitude in them, which in turn issues in obedience and so on. Job doesn't quite con connote that for me. And so, yes, the, the short answer is, yeah, I mean, we understand that the nature of membership is as is outlined and has to be, otherwise it's a pretty meaningless exercise. I think, I think Jonathan tried to emphasize the privilege side of it, though, when you were talking about the enormous uh, authority that is vested in a congregation to do things far more important and eternal and powerful than the United States Supreme Court or the Congress or anyone else. You're, you're, you're binding and loosing, uh, exercising... Speaking for heaven. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a great way to begin with Jesus represents heaven, and then right. the local church represents heaven. You know, running through Matthew's gospel, showing us that's very powerful. Yeah. Other thoughts, reflections, guys, that would be useful to Jonathan or just for the folks here? A question I'm wondering about, um, first of all, thank you, brother, for uh, the, the many hours you've been thinking about this issue, the many wonderful things you've written on this issue, and the distillation that we just heard and the tour of Matthew's gospel uh, was encouraged. Um, I think it was in your fourth point, which was your first implication. Submit. We yeah, don't join, he says, we, we, submit. we don't join churches. We submit to them. Um, any dangers with that language? I mean, how would, you, how would you respond to people who say that that sounds, that strikes them as, as authoritarian, dictatorial, that um, we live in a day and age of, of many abuses of church authority, and that language of submitting is problematic. I mean, how would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Certainly authority has been abused since the fall. But that's not a reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And if there is a kind of authoritative relationship that 
exists between church and individual, I think we have to acknowledge it for what it is and speak about it carefully, pastorally, wisely. Now, admittedly, a lot of Nine Mark's work is sort of responding to squishy, boundarylessness evangelicalism. But sometimes we, we kind of turn the other way and we find ourselves talking to people coming out of, say, a certain form of fundamentalism where there is say, an abuse of authoritarianism. And uh, I find in those contexts, yeah, sometimes the lessons are different and the applications are different. You know, I tell people to calm down a little bit, right? Uh, extra, uh, emphasize the freedom that they have in various ways. Nonetheless, I, I think a balanced presentation of the relationship between the individual and the church needs to include the concept of authority. Did, I mean, you may have said something more specific in mind, though, in your question. No, I, I, that was the question. I mean, you're, to me, would you, in the vows in a wedding, do you mind using that verb submit or obey for the wife to make to the husband? Not, not at all. I just don't think we are, I don't think it's customary for us to think about church membership. It, with that language of submission, and, and that's what you were driving at, and you, you talked about in your opening, uh, we think of it as kind of voluntary association and, and this kind of autonomy and so on. So I realized you were driving at that. Um, so that's that's good language, I think. It's at least in provocative. A, yeah, provocative, used used in a slightly different way or context, and um, it's just just pockets of of folks in the evangelical world, I think, who are really concerned about authority, abuse of authority, and, and would see membership itself uh, and the requirement of membership itself as an overreaching of authority. So I was just wondering how you would respond to that. And that and it was wonderful. It was I, I think we want to get our heads around the fact that Christ is king. And that king gives, delegates certain authority to people. He does in the state. He does with parents. And we get that. I think we have a harder to understand understanding the, the nature and the kind of authority that he gives to the local church. But you've got to finally go back to the lordship and the kingship of Christ and understand what he authorizes that assembly to do. You know? so, so you're pushing against the problem of a churchless lordship. That's right. Know, of, of a sort of lordship. Easy believism. Jesus is Savior. Maybe you're not. He's Lord. Is, is that point... Uh, Mainly or or in part a pushback against the idea, and Thabiti just mentioned this, of the local church as a voluntary association. Is that what one of the things that you're after in that point to yeah. say the church is not a voluntary? And do you all understand what that means? In, in other words, there would be some people who would say your participation in the life of a local congregation as a member is an option. It's something you may decide to do or not do. And that point is designed to say, no, that's part of your submission to the king is to be a part of his body. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the message for the American context. But, you know, you think about, think about the context, say, in India. And a friend of mine was a pastor north of India. And people from the south of India, in this very family-based culture, they identify very much with their families. They'd move to the north of India to work, and they would send all their, say, tithe dollars back south to their family or to their, to their, uh, their churches that they grew up in back south and wouldn't commit themselves fully to their churches up in the north. So there you're in a different context. It's not autonomous individualism that's driving them to not submit to a, a local church where they are and where they're living. It's, it's family ties. It's good family relational ties. 
So it's a, it's a different problem in a way, but it's, it's the same problem. Yeah. It's keeping people from submitting to the, the assembly, the local assembly. So, that, by the way, that point that the local church is not a voluntary society or association would be one of those points in ecclesiology that Baptists and Presbyterians would agree on historically. Presbyterians would affirm that local church membership is not the same as being a member of the Rotary Club or some other voluntary association where you... You're perfectly free to do it if you want to. You're not required to do it if you don't. It's something that you decide to do under uh, the con- your conscience under the Word of God. But the local church is something uh, which is not voluntary. It is something that is required uh, for obedience so, to Christ. So are you saying that membership of Presbyterian church is involuntary because of infant baptism? No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> so you're saying just that not a particular local church, but that Christians should be a part of a local church. That is church, correct. A Bible teaching local church. That is church. correct. That's not meant to be optional. Yeah. That's just, that's exactly. there for everyone. And that Congregationalists and Presbyterians would agree on that. Now, I, I think the Beatty's point is great. In fact, I had a brother, dear friend of mine, come up to me at the break talking about he's here in part because he's ministering to a congregation that has come out from under abusive leadership. And, and he's here because he does believe in authoritative leadership in the I'm, church. I'm just curious. It's a little dangerous. But if you feel that you have been in a church with pretty seriously abusive leadership, just raise your hand. Not taking down names, taking pictures. I'm just curious how, how yeah. big a percentage in a, in a group. Yeah. So, okay, so maybe 10% of the folks here. Yeah. So I mean, that, that, and that, that bears out the Beatty's concern. So I, here, were, here are a couple of things I would say. It's interesting to me that even, even in those marital vows that you were pointing out, what I often say to women that are struggling with the idea of submission um, in the marriage vows is uh, a minister of the gospel is not allowed to ask you to submit until he has vowed to submit in the first place. Every minister of the gospel in the Presbyterian Church in America has to vow to submit. In fact, one of our ordination vows is, will you submit to your brethren in the Lord? And so I point out that actually every Christian makes a vow to submit. It's not just women. It's not just church members. It's pastors. It's elders. It's every Christian vows to submit in one way or another. And so I think it's, it's important for everyone to realize that submission isn't for a subcategory of Christians. It's for all Christians. And it's for leaders as well as those who are, who are members in the church. And the second thing I would say is, in our vows, we also, uh, ministerial vows in the Presbyterian church, in that vow to submit to our brethren in the Lord, we recognize that we are not independently, autonomously authoritative. We, we are in submission not only to the laws of Christ and the word of God for his church, but we're in submission to our brethren in that regard. They can call us to account. They can, they can recognize that we have sinned. Uh, there, are, there are chains of accountability. So just like your point was, there's no responsibility without authority. So also, there is no responsibility without accountability in the church. So you don't have a class of people in the church who don't submit and a class Absolutely. of people in the church who do submit. And if you look at these high-profile disaster cases that all of us have been cringing at watching in social media and various other formats for the last two years, invariably there is a lack of accountability 
of key leadership people. There, there's no accountability structure. So you don't hear Jonathan saying authority without accountability. He's not saying that. But he, he is saying that there's real authority. And even saying that is a really countercultural thing right now because people do feel like, well, if there's authority, there will be abuse. But if, if you make that move, then you have to cut against so much of what the New Testament says about our life together. There, here's, here's another one. There is, people love to talk about community today. There is no such thing as community without authority. It does not exist. You have to have authority to have real community as it's described in the New Testament. So w what you want to do is you want to argue not against authority, but you want to argue against authority which has no accountability. Just quickly, one of the ways I'm thinking about this point, and, and I want you to adjust my thinking, help me and say this is good, or you would add this or that, and so on, um, is sometimes when I, when I heard this point, I, I began to think of sometimes people saying Christ has a claim on my life. And I, and I like that. Right? He's Lord, he's owner, he's ruler, he's chosen. Um, and you're saying here that that claim is not just personal, but it, but it expresses itself in a claim that he has on a people as well. And that, it's to be, that claim is to be worked out in your submission to that people, to the Lord, and so on. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's, I, mean, I, I think so. I think I agree with what you're saying, or the way you're putting it. Um, so he, he makes a claim on me by purchasing me, right, in salvation, and then commanding me to, to submit myself to this assembly, repent and be baptized, right? And then in the context of that assembly where two or three are gathered in his name, and we've all been baptized into his name, you guys have a job to do. Maybe the word job is too prosaic. Is, is that, but, but, but you have a responsibility, you have an authority to do. Um, and so, yes, I have a claim you on that people. You have the privilege people. of. Privilege of, sure. Duty and delight. Yeah, I think that's, that's my only response. It's just that the terminology. I mean, even, and I understand the way you put it, you know, we don't join a church. Yes, we do. That's why you have membership interviews, so you can join the church. I mean, the average person, if you ask them, what are you doing? Uh, well, I just moved to the area, and I'm, I'm going through the process to join the church. They don't say, I'm submitting to the thing in the terminology sure. that you've said. And in fact, if that was the way that it led, the chances are that they would be recoiling because of the prospect of the very authoritarianism that is represented in so many of these places. That's why terminology matters, because it, it connotes more than simply what the words themselves say. And people, people respond to terminology in, in our culture because of all of the other baggage that they have represented in it. Sure. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not um, taking any disagreement with the foundational element of it. I think just in terms of tenor and tone and the way in which we connote that kind of stuff because people can get the wrong end of the stick and not realize what a wonderful thing it is we're actually talking about the safety and the security and the and the privilege of engagement in one another's lives in that way and that, that's why i made the comment i'm not necessarily saying you, you know you should all go out and start not using language of submit instead of join i mean i think that's fine good language to use nonetheless i do think we should train congregation members Christians to understand there is 
Theologically and biblically, there is submission going on here. So how you do that wisely pastorally is, is a great well, question, but I think we do need to train them in that direction. I think, I don't know how many of you guys actually are members of country clubs or have ever joined them, but I am. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm, here, I'm here to tell you that uh, the idea that you've got about how you get into them and what's involved uh, would, be, would be helped by actually going through the process. And I say that not to let you know I'm in a club, but to tell you that uh, when I joined the club of which I'm now a member, it was a thoroughly impressive process, very much along the lines that are the things that you are concerned about. Who are you? What do you believe? What are the values that you hold to you? Uh, would you be prepared to serve in any capacity if you come here? Or do you simply want to make use of the thing, or will you commit to this or commit to that? Uh, will you come back next Thursday with your wife because we would like to meet her and we would like her to meet some of the other members of the thing? Would you come to an evening dinner and so on? I mean, I was overwhelmed by the extent to which they were concerned for all these things. And I went back to the elders in my church and said, you know, we could learn a lot of lessons from this process here about tone and about engagement and about the very sort of um, just... The, the, the tenderness of it and the purpose, purposefulness of it all. So, um, and again, so, I, you know, yeah, enough said. If, if you look at, if you did, they, did, they, did they ask you to come forward and be baptized? <laughs> no, but they invited me to share in the fellowship of suffering. <laughs> in, the, in the pool. In the pool. I spend a lot of time in the water at a golf course, yeah. Okay, one simple preacher's thing. A great passage to preach on is Second Samuel 23, the very beginning of that. If you want to hit at some of the headwaters of the anti-authoritarianism and think about a positive way to think about authority, I love those last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's a great positive passage on how the Lord has meant authority to be used in reflecting His image. So you can begin dealing with the, the just anti-authoritarianism. And anti-authoritarianism is fine, but anti-authoritism in our culture by presenting the biblical positive picture of God's good rule and reign and how we're to reflect that in our families, our lives, and our, our churches. Yeah. Um, one or two more things before we break off for lunch. Anything? Alistair? Oh, I don't think so. Ligon? No, just another aspect of, of this dynamic of authority and, and submission in the church. Um, because the members of the church have selected the officers of the church, 
you're not asking them to submit to the leadership of those officers without them having already acknowledged that those officers are called by God and gifted to do that work. And so, again, that reciprocal aspect of accountability softens what could make people fearful about submitting themselves in a particular situation. Uh, just thank you, brother, for leaving us in that final point with uh, Christianity is not for the morally perfect, it's for the morally broken. Yeah, that's a good word. Uh, it's just good ball. I appreciate good that. Good work. We tell, and because our, that first question of church membership in the PCA is do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God justly uh, deserving his displeasure and without hope except through his sovereign mercy, we tell people that good people are not allowed to join First Presbyterian Church. We don't, we don't allow good people to join First Presbyterian Church. You Amen. have to be a sinner in order Amen. to be a member of this church. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, it's true. As it goes with the minister, so it goes with the congregation. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> Brother Danny, anything to add? <laughs> Most of us are older, so we've seen the pendulum swing back and forth to where there was a uh, disrespect for any type of authority. Some of the brethren in recent years have tried to correct that and in a number of cases overcorrected it. So now you've got to push back starting again. It's just again a reminder just how rigorously biblical we need to be. Uh, carnal authoritarianism is evil. But godly authority is a wonderful thing and an essential thing. But let the scriptures be our guide and let them determine what that really looks like. Model of a shepherd, he is a leader but he loves his sheep enough to put his life on the line. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, thank you for helping us to think about church membership. We're all going to join in and try to help with that over the next uh, couple of days. Uh, thank you for showing very clearly how, according to Matthew's gospel and uh, the New Testament, it, church membership is not just an aid that we may choose to use, but that's the basic way Jesus intended us, the shape of the discipleship that he laid out for us. Thank you for that.